Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody, to the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Uh, we have a uh, almost full complement of hosts uh, today. Tiffany, Erica, Doug, and Elliot are with us, uh, but uh, Gabby is missing today. So we will uh, we'll miss Gabby and, and think about her while we're doing the show. But today is January 1st, 2016. So Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, guys. So we hope that everybody's feeling okay today and that you didn't stay up too late last night. Um <laughs> <laughs> so uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, just the general phenomenon of New Year's resolutions. Um, our theme is biohacking 2016, so we're going to talk about some of the things that you can do about your health, uh, about turning it around this year. Um, and we are definitely uh, welcoming uh, you know, input from the chat uh, as well as callers. Um, yeah, call we do in have with a your New Year's resolution. Yeah, we do yeah. have a call-in number. Uh, it's uh, 718-508-9499, and that's a U.S. number. Um, so if you are happening to uh, call from overseas, you'll need to do the appropriate country extension, which I admit uh, guiltily that I, I don't know for the U.S. I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> I think it's people can use Skype way. too, if I'm not mistaken. You can use Skype to to call in. Ah, uh, yes. There you go. So I guess let's just start with a general uh, discussion. You know, you know, the last show we did before Christmas, we did kind of a year in review, but we uh, we talked more in general about news topics. And I was wondering if you guys want to uh, start with a little discussion about anything that you did. Um, this year, uh, I can say for myself that I explored the uh, the ketogenic diet uh, more than I had in the past, um, and I'm not going to lie, I did cheat and fall off the wagon a number of times, uh, and I also learned how, how damaging and how much of a bummer that can be. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, when, you're, when you're doing the keto diet and you cheat, it hurts worse than it does normally. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. What about you guys? Is there anything special that you did in in regards to your health this year? Well, it's not very hard to fall off the wagon <laughs> for some people. <laughs> yeah. Ketosis. I mean, you can have one night of Christmas cookies. <laughs> they can even be keto-friendly Christmas cookies, and oops, I'm not in ketosis anymore. Uh, yeah. Well, I wouldn't I say that important. I did anything new. It was just more of the same stuff. Yeah, I think in those situations it's important to forgive yourself too. Not get too yeah. uh you know you know, um what's the word, I guess that not too obsessed and really kind of get down on yourself for, for falling off a little bit. It it should be expected to a certain degree that uh you know you do the best you can and in certain situations you're not going to be able to do as well as you'd hope. And you just kind of get back on that wagon and and get back to it. Yeah, sometimes angsting about it afterwards is worse than actually, you know, whatever transgression you you cross. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, 
He had blown up about it and not worry too much about, oh, I failed, I'm a failure, I'll never make it. And I think half the battle is done. Yeah, it's uh, it's very easy to sort of, when you start on this kind of diet, it's very easy to, well, I found it was anyway, um, easy to, to come at it really religiously, you know, stick to it very obsessively and religiously. And then if you make one little slip, slip, uh, slip, slip up, then... Um, then you sort of you fall into these uh, thought loops. You beat yourself up about it, and it's the end of the world. When in fact, like what's worth remembering is that you've lived most of your life on a standard diet, and so um, so slipping off it for one day or two or something, it's 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 really not the end of the world, is it? You have to sort of cut yourself some slack sometimes. Yeah, I yeah. agree. That's a really good point. I've certainly done other things in the past uh, that were much more damaging to my health, you know, in, in the long run uh, than this past year. Yeah, this is my 10th year anniversary of not having a McDonald's. <laughs> wow. Nice. Awesome. I'm exaggerating. I have no idea how long it's been. But... <laughs> well, congratulations anyway. Thank you. For congratulating me on my false made up McDonald's date. <laughs> one one thing I did want to ask you guys about that I've noticed this year, um, and maybe I was just paying more attention to it, but I definitely noticed it more so than in the past, was uh and uh, my girlfriend and I were talking about this the other day, uh young people with old diseases. Um mm. a, a lot a yeah. lot of you know, people in my People in my family and other people that I've known or people that I've heard about just kind of, uh, you know, tangentially. Um, but, yeah, young people, you know, and they're tw- even they're like early 20s with uh, with diseases that have generally been ascribed to the older generations, uh, it's starting to hit young people a lot more. I wonder if you guys have noticed that, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, one of my lecturers, um, one of my lecturers for nutrition, she um uh, her daughter has actually been diagnosed. I think her daughter's like nine years old, and she's been diagnosed with like systemic arthritis in like every joint of her body. And oh she's, my God. she's like nine, nine or ten years old, you know. And this is, I mean, this is well, un, practically unheard of, you know. Yeah. I, I think really, it's just part of a general trend that we're seeing with uh, the collective health of the world kind of going down into the tanks. Definitely. Yeah, the disease of civilization. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't feel much with younger patients, but it just seems like everybody is sick. Everybody has thyroid trouble. Everybody mm-hmm. is a diabetic. Everybody has high blood pressure. <laughs> Only those three things. I don't yeah. know. Probably because I see it every day. It just seems like nobody is healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And even people who tend to think of themselves as healthy, if you really look at them, it's kind of like, you know, you're not quite as well off as maybe you think that you are. It's like the the collective perception of what healthy is has also kind of degraded and keeps on degrading. I still don't lie in bed all day sick that they think that they're healthy. Like if they don't take more than just a couple of medications, they're healthy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm only on three medications. Yeah, well, I'm pretty healthy. 
<laughs> or even just like small things, uh, small elements like uh, eczema or psoriasis or asthma mm-hmm. or something. And th- these things have been so like normalized that um, mm-hmm. that people just think it's, it's like modern medicine just basically tells you that this happens by chance and this is a normal thing to have. Yeah, it's normal to have asthma, not breathing properly. It's normal mm. to have, you know, lesions on your skin. That's just normal. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just so normalized, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's I, normal I to even not be a, able uh... to sleep and to only have a bowel movement every three days. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know an, even know a naturopathic doctor who um, has, like, brutal seasonal allergies, like, just, just terrible. But she's, like, always talking about how, how she's good and she's healthy and that she's lucky because, you know, she doesn't really have any major health issues or anything like that. And I'm like, are you really looking at yourself? You know, like, just it's not normal to have, when the seasons change, to be completely out of commission, not be able to breathe, watery eyes. Like that is not that it's that's not a normal state of health for a human being. No. Yeah, it is the it is the new metric now. I guess if if you're not like holed up and laid up, that you're healthy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess of one of the major. Heard... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Doug. Uh, well, I was I was just going to say that uh, I guess that. You know, in order, you know, going with our theme on uh, New Year's resolutions, it kind of seems like in order to actually resolve to improve yourself in some way, it, it, it kind of like assumed that you kind of have enough self-awareness to realize where things are actually wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it takes I don't the ability think that to many, see those many things. people do. Because it seems like the the standard resolution for most people is, I want to lose weight in the new year. Mm-hmm. And you can tell, like, on the TV commercials coming up to the new year, there's all these, you know, Weight Watchers. And you look at the store ads, there's all these exercise equipment, like treadmills and dumbbells and whatnot mm-hmm. that go on sale, like, right before yeah. the new year. Well, yeah, even on that, um, I, I watched a little bit of the uh, the New Year's Eve uh, from Times Square last night, and it was all sponsored by a gym, um, yeah. a really terrible <laughs> gym, actually. And it's like, oh, wow, what, what are they promoting here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the uh, Talking about the new standard of health kind of thing, uh, it reminded me of something I heard on the radio the other day that was uh, – uh, just I popped on NPR as I do once in a while, and uh, they were talking about how Donald Trump had gotten a physical, and his doctor had proclaimed that he was in perfect health. And I don't know if they were, <laughs> I don't know if they were being cheeky or not, because like they're not usually very satirical on like the standard NPR, but they said that he was the the healthiest man he had ever seen. The doctor. Come on. Um, and I gotta think. I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about Trump. He might be physically healthy, but he, if if he was really healthy, I think his brain would work better. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, if anything is indicative of his poor state of health, you only need to look at his hair. Yeah, exactly, right? That's not healthy hair. I mean, his hair might be healthy in the way it grows out, but what kind of sane person would have a hairstyle like that? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where he gets yeah. all his power. <laughs> He's got superhuman hair. 
<laughs> like Samson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I definitely don't want to stray too much into the uh, political candidates. That's you can leave that where it lies. But um, I guess uh, so. We have some notes about what we wanted to talk about today, and I think one that would be kind of fun to uh, to get into is um, disaster preparedness. Um, so now. There's, you know, of course, you had the, uh, the 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 great scare of 2000, you know, that all of the clocks were going to reset, and then the yeah. uh, and the yeah. then the great Terrence McKenna scare of 2012. Uh, right. <laughs> um, you know, and so people have been talking about preparedness for for quite some time, but it's it seems to always be couched in this idea that right around the corner. Everything is going to completely collapse, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that may or may not be true. Uh, I'm not like arguing that point of view. I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that did happen. Um, but I think uh, that that also that that mindset kind of leaks into the ideas of preparedness and thinking that you know you have to immediately spend you know five thousand dollars and stock up your cabinet. And get a mm-hmm. bunch of like you know get like three cows you know and two freezers and <laughs> all of this like you know bug out bag and a backup bug out bag for everybody in your family and all this stuff and that you know those are all good ideas but um, uh, <clears throat> we were going to talk a little bit about making small changes uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to trying to stress yourself out and make massive changes and completely change your life or like drain your bank account to get all this preparedness stuff. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I wondered what what input you guys have on on making small changes to uh, preparedness. You know, I think like for me, one thing is just small things added to like the medicine cabinet a little bit over time. You know, like if I can, I'll get a little bit extra of this one thing, or like you know, uh, we've talked about iodine, and we'll have a show on that in the future. But making a batch of iodine uh, so you can have extra and store. You know, some some small steps to take. Uh, is there anything like that that you guys do? Just making small steps towards that. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the best way to approach it. Um, like when you read about, say, economic collapses or, or whatever, um, it, I, th- I think it can can uh, can make people quite fearful, and um, it's very easy to sort of um, to sort of act on that fear and think, okay, I need. I need to spend, as you said, drain my whole bank account and, you know, um, <laughs> stock up on this, who knows what. But um, but I think one of the best ways to approach it is, as you said, just take take small steps um, to implement changes into your life with what you have and what you've got available, you know. So, for instance, as you said, just, just one, one thing, um, one, one extra thing in your medicine cabinet or, for instance, um, taking up a, a, a certain a, a new skill, um, or it, uh, you spoke about it in um, in another show a few few months back, I think, and it was it was um, trying to take steps to um, build relationships with people in your community. So, for instance, mm-hmm. just going over and saying hello, hey, how how are you doing? You know, just getting to know your neighbours. Um, small things like that, I think. I think they're the they're the best way um, that we can sort of really approach this. Yeah, 
I think that's true. And I think um, a lot of this, like being prepared, is actually in a lot of ways more of a state of mind than it is about having all the gear and like loading up on guns and stock food and all that sort of thing. Um, I think that, uh, you know, what you were mentioning, Elliot, about fear, you know, acting out of fear is actually the opposite of being prepared. You know, exactly. being prepared means keeping your brain kind of malleable. You know, you have a plan, but uh, you're flexible enough to kind of deviate from that plan if you need to. You know, you have um, things in place uh, ahead of time where there's any number of possibilities could be accounted for. You know, um, it's not, like you said, Jonathan, we're not necessarily going to see some massive collapse of society or anything like that. But I think anybody who's paying attention can see that we're on a downward trend and that things are getting worse. So, but but reacting to that in a state of, um, you know, not expectation, but just kind of uh, hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst, I guess is what it is. And uh, yeah, not giving into that fear mentality of like holding yourself up in a bunker. Um, because I really think that if, if things really did go down, uh, you know, those people who are holed up in a bunker probably aren't going to be much better off than, than the people who weren't even considering things at all. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. I'm a big fan of the, the idea of adding skills, Elliot, like you said, like, you know, pick something and take, you know, take a month or take two months and really kind of get into it. Like, uh, you know, canning. Learn everything that you can about uh, canning, and and don't you know necessarily fill up your entire pantry, but can a few things and get into it. Or, you know, pick a uh, an activity that you haven't done before, like uh, martial arts. You know, like Aikido or Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. You know, there's most most cities or, or residential areas have some sort of class like that that you can take. As an example, you know, seek seek out stuff yeah. like that. Um, yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. Or whether it's just, you know, uh, you know how to sew. You know, if you've never sewed anything in your entire life, like find a find a ripped garment and, and get a needle and thread and just start practicing, you know, and just learn how to repair things. Stuff like that. Or take yeah. a day out, go, go fishing with some friends or something. The family mm-hmm. member, go fishing, learn how to fish. And, yeah. You know. Yeah, there was an interesting on thought, uh, article on thought about this, actually, um, called Daily Habits of Prepared People written by Daisy Luther at the Activist Post. And, you know, I won't go through it in too much detail, but um, I I thought one of the really interesting things that she talked about was um, situational awareness. And we've talked about that in the past on the show, um, when we did our show on on preparation. Um, And I think that, like, preparing yourself psychologically is kind of a, a, a valuable step to take. Um, and this is where, you know, things like martial arts classes can come in handy. I mean, you know, you're not by going to a martial arts class, you're not necessarily learning how to, you know, fight your way out of a situation, although that might actually come down and you might, uh, you, that might come in handy. But I think one of the valuable things about martial arts is that it kind of teaches situational awareness, um, that you are aware of what's going on around you um, and that you have a baseline of normality so that when things deviate from that baseline, you're aware and uh, able to react to the situation and not fall into uh, the normalcy bias, which is, yeah. uh, you know, even when things go wrong, you kind of have, you, your brain kind of shuts down and thinks, oh, no, this is normal, this is okay. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, psychological preparedness is, is almost um, as important as, you know, having food and, uh, and a escape plan and a bug-out bag and all that sort of thing. 
I agree. And she said in the article that prepared people spend their time before an emergency, and that's kind of um, key to survival. Is is as you were all saying, how you how your daily life kind of reflects what you would do in an emergency. So canning, just having situational awareness. You know, physical activity. Like you know, people think they're going to be able to hike 60 miles to safety and they don't even walk at all during the day. So (laughs) having a realistic expectation of your, your fitness level and what you can handle if, if you Mm -hmm. need to bug out, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You should think of the basics of what you need to survive. You need food, you need water, you need shelter and you need a well-functioning body. So I think those four things are, good things to to focus on. And as well, you also need a network, like Elliot said. Yeah. Yeah, I think the health aspect of that is ten, it tends to be what's overlooked. You know, um, it's like the, the article that uh, was posted on SAW a couple of years ago um, that uh, talked about, are you prepping your diet? You know, are you getting yourself in, uh, you know, optimal functional order? Um, you know, if you're dependent on a whole bunch of medications, what's going to happen if uh, you no longer have uh, access to those medications? You know, so getting yourself in, a, in an optimal state of health is a really, really important step. Yeah, and especially and also, like... Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, being able to be calm in a situation, too, you know, um, I mean, that even applies to daily life, but having, again, that idea of situational awareness and being calm, and if you see things start to, you know, slowly slope downward, you know, it can even be uh, a storm or, you know, uh, all these people were traveling over the holidays and they got stuck in airport for days on end because of weather, like how to calmly be present, think through the situation instead of getting caught up in all the kind of crazy emotional sense that people get, you know, panic, really. Yeah. And being able to uh, think critically, too, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think this is where where stress management techniques come in. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, to some extent, I mean, if you're on a high-sugar diet and you consume things like gluten and dairy products, and you're having insulin spikes up and down all of the time, you've got uh, an unsteady blood sugar level, how are you going to be able to think properly anyway? You know? Yeah. And so I think this is why the diet is, is really so important. Um, it, mm-hmm. Even just, just to be able to, to deal with a stressful situation like that. And even when it comes to things, um, things like storing food, like canning, dehydrating, curing, and preserving meats and stuff, um, one of the great things about a, a, a ketogenic diet is that your main fuel, um, your main fuel source, can be stored so easily. Um, mm. Like you think of lard or ghee or butter or um, beef tallow or you know any type of animal fat, you can basically just stick it in a jar and put it in a cupboard, and you can be sure that it's going to keep for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Whereas you've got you've got things. Um, you know, say you have massive bags of rice. I mean, how much rice can you consume in a day? I mean, most people who eat eat a plate of rice, they eat a big plate of rice, you know, to fill them up. Mm-hmm. So 
even though you may have a bigger bulk of non sort of fatty foods um it's 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 there there's not a, as much sustenance in that so so you know like uh it it's much better on all levels i think mhm and also being able to intermittently fast, you know, not mm-hmm. needing to eat three meals a day and, and you know, depending on your situation, if you're needing to leave and you don't have, you know, to carry that 50-pound bag of rice with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but being able to sustain energy on a minimal amount of fuel, I think, is, is you know, what the prepping your diet talked about. Yeah, being satisfied with less food, and even the thinnest person, I think it was in Nora Gaudis's book or someone's book, uh, even if you're very lean, you can still have up to like 40,000 calories of fat that your body can access mm-hmm. just from your own person. So being prepared with a ketogenic diet, and you, there's going to be food shortages perhaps, so that's another thing to consider. Yeah, I think we all of us here have experienced that moment, uh, you know, where, you know, trying to do like the paleo diet or the ketogenic diet and doing it for a while and say so you fall off the wagon and you notice that when you eat uh, a, uh, a surplus of carbs that you get much, much more hungry. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, just anecdotally, uh, I can say, and I think uh, a, a lot of other people can say that too, that, you know, if you're if you're on a, a high fat, more of a fat based diet, very very low carbs, uh, little to no sugar, um, that you can go a lot longer without uh, getting hungry. And in that way, not only are you uh, sustaining yourself, you know, and being more effective, but you're also um, not draining on the resources of whatever your community has. And so each person can be more more effective, more long lasting. Um, it will help your mood, you know, because when you get hungry, you get grumpy. Um, mm-hmm. And there's just a lot of, like, I mean, we've talked about this many times, but there's there's a lot of ancillary benefits to the uh, the high-fat diet, and especially in a preparedness situation, I think that's, that's really important, you know, because we're not going to have boxes of, uh, you know, crackers and, you know, 50-gallon uh, tubs of rice and that kind of thing available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some people might, but, you know, it's... it's the people that do stock up on those things are going to be reliant on those things. Um, yeah. And when it comes when it comes down to it, when your body is running on carbs and sugar, um, you're going to have much shorter half life of being able to sustain yourself. Yeah, that's definitely true. And you know, just getting your brain in the most optimal functioning um, state is really one thing. Uh, another benefit of being on a ketogenic diet you know a brain that runs on fat is 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 just more functionally sound than a brain that's running on sugar so uh you know having being in a in some kind of emergency situation you you need your brain like that's what it really comes down to so uh you know aside from just uh using less food and being able to um sustain yourself for longer without food uh, being able to uh, think your way out of situations where otherwise you would just uh, kind of devolve into panic or just not be able to see the big picture, um, I think is, is another, like, you know, maybe the prime um, reason for kind of going ketogenic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like and how they, uh, the article said that um, 
preparedness is not some finite goal that is achieved when you have amassed a certain amount of beans and bullets. <laughs> it's something that is in, it, it's an ingrained part of your personality or your life, and our habits become such a natural part of us that we don't think about them when we find ourselves in the midst of an emergency. The way you live your day-to-day life is the real key to survival, and this is something that no amount of money can buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, you can be that one person who has, you know, all this gear and tons and tons of food, and you have your bunker. But then when things finally go down, and you freak out, and you go nuts. I mean, what good are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's nothing more terrifying than a prepper who's who's stocked up on enough bullets to take out the entire U.S. Panicking. <laughs> You know, that's, like, that's, that's, that's a terrible, you know, yeah. scenario right there. Or just even stupid mistakes or accidents that you can fall into if you're just not aware, not even, like, aware of your environment. You can, you know, you forgot to stock up on EpiPens and you're allergic to bees. <laughs> you fall into a hole and you break your ankle just yeah. because you're not paying attention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I think something that also connects to that, uh, and that we were, you know, had discussed uh, talking about on the show today, is uh, cold adaptation. And uh, if if our listeners are not um, aware of that, it's a pretty simple concept. Uh, you basically subject your body to uh, gradually more and more. Uh, lengthened um, exposure to cold Um, and not only does it uh, kind of strengthen your will and kind of steal your resolve because it's hard to do um, Mm. but it it also uh, changes a lot of the functions in your body and turns on uh, certain functions for healing uh, for repairing DNA and uh, things that your your body is capable of doing Um, and so that's something that uh, uh, a number of us have been experimenting with for a while. I have to admit and be honest that I have not been able to do it for an extended period of time. I have done it from time with to time, but I think too, that's... What's that? I'm with you, too. I seems too. like two to three months of steady cold adaptation is as far as I can go. And then I have to take a break and then come back to it. And then it's especially hard in the winter time when it's already cold outside and you just yeah. don't want to add yeah. that cold on to it. But in the summertime, yeah, I'm I over it. <laughs> <laughs> I, honestly, I can't even say that I do that. It's like I, I try it once in a while for, you know, maybe like three or four days. Um, and so I've never really been able to do it for an extended period of time. But I, I also, I feel, I, I always end up thinking that I have this excuse because I live in a cold environment. Uh, I live pretty far north. Uh, and we have really cold winters, and we're always kind of dealing with the cold. And so I am somewhat cold adapted already. So I'm like, well, you know, I, I live in the northern climate. Like I don't need to do that, which is not entirely true. Like I also live in a, in a I also live in a heated house, which you know. So I I could uh, I could definitely stand to do it a lot more. I think that's one of the things that I'm going to try this year uh, is to do more of that cold adaptation, but. Uh, I don't know, Doug, you tried it for a while too, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, it was probably the same kind of thing what uh, what Tiffany was saying. I think it was three or four months or something like that where I was doing it fairly regularly. 
Um, but then, the, you know, the, the weather started getting colder, and I just I found myself standing out at the bus stop and just being absolutely freezing. And I, I just was like, I I can't keep doing this. I have to I have to take a break from it. Like I, it's it's just it's too much. Um, and you know, it, it's interesting because the the cold adaptation when you read about it, you know, people's experiences. They start talking about how they're, they they notice their body adapting, and that um, you know the, this kind of internal heater kicks in where you know suddenly they're much more able to uh, to tolerate these cold temperatures. I personally, I don't know if my, my cold adaptation system is just broken or it uh, <laughs> maybe needs a little bit longer to adapt than other people do, but I never got to that point. You know, I was doing it probably, like I say, about three months, and uh, I, I never got to the point where I was anywhere close to comfortable with it, and I, was, I would be in a, a somewhat cold environment and just be freezing. So yeah, I don't know. I've I've got I've got some work on that front. I think maybe the iodine protocol will help with that. <laughs> I kind of became cold adapted. Like when I first started, I always took baths. I never took the showers. The showers for mm-hmm. me were just intolerable. We yeah. took the bath. You can get in and just be still and sit there. And exactly. then once you know your your skin went numb, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> but, <laughs> Sometimes I would feel that I felt a little warm in my trunk area, especially after eating. And mm-hmm. at night in bed, uh, I would get hot, and, and I used to sleep with a bunch of blankets on top of me, like all throughout the year. But now I, I have to throw the blankets off of me. Um, I noticed mm-hmm. that when I was doing the cold adaptation. But also starting the iodine, I think I probably notice it more with iodine versus the cold the cold bath. Hmm. People at work are always complaining how cold it is in the office, and I just felt completely comfortable. So they were complaining and complaining, and finally I think this week they turned the heat up, and I just thought it was stifling, and that's yeah. usually not the way I operate. <laughs> I, I completely agree about the um, about the showers, because when when you when you turn on the shower on on a really cold setting and then you sort of stand under it i i, I used to find that my body would sort of naturally just curl into weird positions to to get away <laughs> from the water whereas when you're in the bath it's <laughs> once you submerge you sort of have no choice you basically just have to like wait it out and then your body goes completely numb and um and once it's numb it's it's really quite comfortable in the bath but um, but I, I yeah I didn't pass I, I was I was doing it for about six months I sort of did it religiously I don't even think I had like a warm shower in the space of like four months um, <laughs> so yeah. I basically just had the cold bath and um, and yeah like you Doug I didn't notice any difference in my internal sort of um, temperature gauge uh, I mm. still got really cold it was in the middle of winter and I'd be standing outside. I'd be absolutely freezing. I'd be inside. I'd be absolutely freezing. So it just got to the point where I just decided, you know, either I'm not doing this properly, or there's something <laughs> wrong with my system that's not that's not working. So I'm just going to give it up and 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 do some more research into it, learn about it, and then do it properly in the future at some point. So that's for me anyway. That's one of the uh, the major New Year's resolutions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least until February, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm actually hesitating on making a resolution to get cold adapted. <laughs> That's how averse I am to it. I'm kind of like, do I want to evolve that, that to do that? I I don't know. And Elliot, I have to say that uh, I I never got to the point where I found the bath comfortable in any <laughs> any sense of the, oh, the yes. term. There were times when I thoroughly enjoyed it, but that only lasts for maybe like the first three to four weeks, uh, and then the novelty wears off. Yeah. <laughs> Well, one thing I did notice with it is that um, I actually started to tolerate warm showers a lot less. That was one thing I did notice is that if the the, the shower, like the the thought of taking a hot shower was really unappealing, and uh, so I even even having a, a shower that was you know less than cold, maybe what you consider lukewarm, I was kind of like, ugh, this doesn't feel so good. So I guess there was some change going on there. Yeah, I was well, wondering one thing if you guys. Sorry, go ahead. Well, um, in this article on site, it said called Mild Cold Exposure Stimulates Good Fat Energy Expenditure. So they say that uh, exposing yourself to cold activates brown fat, and brown fat contains mitochondria. So the more mitochondria Mm. you have, the more energy you have. Mm. When I first did cold baths for the very, very first time, and this was maybe two or three years ago, I did notice an extremely increased, uh, noticeably improved mood. I was, like, giddy at times. It was Hmm. that striking. And I would take a break and go back to it, but I never got that same cold bath high (laughs) that I got the very first time. I'm always trying to go back to that, but it's never repeated itself. So I thought I'd just point that out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I noticed uh, for myself, and like I said, maybe this just supports my uh, my excuse of living in a northern climate. <laughs> and that, but I, I wonder if uh, uh, if cold adaptation works more effectively for people who live in warmer climates. Uh, I'm not entirely certain about that. I'm kind of speculating here because here, um, like I live on the on the shores of uh, Lake Superior, uh, so we're pretty far north of the United States, and it, it gets cold here. Like last year, we had regularly uh, 20 below zero Fahrenheit. Um, and when when the spring wow. comes around, yeah, it, I mean, it's extremely cold. Like, you actually have to be careful about going outside. Um, this mm-hmm. year it's not so much, uh, but last year was pretty bad. But uh, when the spring comes around and it tops, you know, 30 degrees Fahrenheit, people are breaking out the T-shirts. And, like, you know, mm-hmm. they're like, wow, it's warm. And, uh, you know, that, wow. that would normally be extreme, extremely cold for a lot of people. Um, but I notice here, yeah, as soon as it, as soon as it tops like freezing and it gets into the, uh, like thirties and even into like the low forties in the Fahrenheit scale, uh, it actually feels very warm and we're doing work outside, you know, in, in t-shirts and starting to sweat a lot more and stuff like that. So, um, the, the spring is definitely a, a welcome time here, but I wonder if that has to do with cold adaptation because, uh, you know, generally once you're in the cold for a while, um, you definitely get adapted and the warmer temperatures feel a lot warmer. But we also mm-hmm. swim in Lake Superior, which is uh, a standard. It's like, I think, 45 degrees Fahrenheit normally, even in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And so, you know, once you when you jump in the water, once you're done hyperventilating and screaming for a little <laughs> bit, then, then you... Uh, you get used to it, and then you can hang out there for a while. So that's that's another way to to do that. If you know if you live on a 
on a cold northern lake, but of course not very many people do. <laughs> I think I think that probably um, that probably does contribute, and and maybe to some extent there is some level of cold adaptation. Um, Jack Cruz is um, in his book. It's called Epipaleo RX, and um, I finished reading it maybe a month or two ago. And he's got a whole chapter actually dedicated to. Um, he's like individually designed a. Um, a cold therapy protocol, and I think it's up on his um, on his blog as well online. But um, he states here that water is 24 times more effective than just cold air. So I, I think to some extent, uh, living in a cold environment, it would get you um, relatively cold adapted. But I think um, in terms of um, the full benefits, getting you the full benefits of cold adaptation, I think you would probably have to have to sort of um, expose yourself to, to to freezing cold water. Um, yeah, I think I so mean, too. Like, I, I think also, um, I know certainly I, I didn't prepare myself in any way for cold adaptation. Um, I basically just jumped into a cold bath um, <laughs> straight away, you know. And uh, according to, to him in his book, he, he basically says that that's really not a good thing to do whatsoever. I mean, he's got like a four-week plan. I mean, as I said, there's a whole chapter dedicated, but I have taken a few notes on it. And um, he says, always, like, before, you, um, before you're going to begin cold ad- adaptation, so every day you want to start it off with a high-fat slash high-protein meal. Um, he also says, just before you enter any water, um, you want to drink 16 to 32 ounces of ice-cold water. Now, what this does is raises your metabolic rate, and um, it basically uh, sets your internal body temperature. It gets your uh, your fat-burning mechanisms working and everything. He also mentioned leptin leptin sensitivity in it, but I I won't go into that too much because it it does get quite into depth. But um, he's basically just outlined um, three main steps for getting wholly cold cold adapted. And uh, when I read this, I was... A little bit um, intimidated. <laughs> um, I'll, yeah, I'll just quickly overview it. Um, he says the first step that you you have to take is um, you'll need a, a skin thermometer, um, you need lots of ice, <laughs> you need a bathroom sink, and you need a watch with a timer or like a stopwatch or something. And he says basically the idea is of cold adaptation is to cool the skin but it's very important to maintain the core body temperature. So basically, he says this is the main reason why it takes um, so long for the body to adapt to, um, to cold adaptation, is because your body needs to learn to regulate its internal body temperature while being exposed on the outside to, um, to, extremely cold, um, to an extremely cold environment. So like the first step is to, um, to dunk your face or to fill the sink up um, in your bathroom or in your kitchen or something, and to fill it with ice, <laughs> like uh, maybe one 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 standard-sized bag of ice or something. And he says, basically, what you want to do is you want to dunk your face in the ice water for as long as you can. And at the same time, you want to try and um, measure your skin temperature, and you want to keep it above 50 degrees Fahrenheit and preferably below 50 degrees No below 55 degrees, so in between the 50 to 55 Fahrenheit. That's 
um, supposedly the perfect temperature for your skin to be at when, when you're cold ad adapting. He says um, you want to record the time that it takes for you um, to, basically you want to put your head in the, submerge your head in the ice water and then you want to record how long it takes for, um, till, till, till you basically need to take your head out of the, out of the ice water. But he says, um, when you can stay submerged in the water until you need to take a breath, so that's roughly like 45 seconds or something, uh, that's when you're ready to move on to the next stage. So the next stage, stage two, is basically, uh, he says you need to buy a compression shirt and, uh, <laughs> and you want to place 20 to 40 pounds of ice on and around the torso. And uh, you basically want to, he says it will be tough at first, but you want to try to increase each session by five minutes until you reach 60 minutes. So that's basically having bags of ice, 20 to 40 pounds of ice, directly on your torso for 60 minutes. He says um, you want to continue to check the color of your skin because if the color of your skin turns white or pale, then it means that your internal body temperature is lowering too much. He says that can, that's when it gets dangerous. So he says that you always want to try and maintain um, a skin color which is sort of pink or cherry red in color, and that means that your internals um, this, the same uh, the same as it was before. It's just the out um, the outside of your skin is is lowering um, the proper amount that it should. And then the final stage is um, is basically immersion in a cold water bath and he says once you've gotten used to um, doing 60 minutes of the compression shirt and the ice on your torso um, that's when you want to start getting into the bath you don't want to get into the bath before you've done these two steps because that can make you quite ill <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah he says, he says uh, basically fill the, water, fill the bath up completely with, um, with the cold, cold water ice cold water preferably and then you want to get into the bath, and then you want to add 20 to 40 pounds of ice on your torso and to the bath. And you want, to, you want to remain submerged for as long as you can handle. And your skin temperature always wants to remain 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, this guy basically, <laughs> he's been doing this for a few years. And what he actually states in the book is that one night, because he does it when he gets home from work at night, so he has his evening meal, and then he gets in the ice, ice bath. And, um, and he said one night what he did was he got in uh, 10 o'clock in the evening or something, and he fell asleep <laughs> and woke up 12 hours later. Whoa. <laughs> perfectly fine, yeah. His internal body temperature is not had not um had not gone down whatsoever. And he basically says what you can expect from doing this in this um by following this specific protocol is that basically like you can go outside in the in the winter in the snow and you'll be warm, you know, you'll be I mean he's a neurosurgeon so he treats all of his um all of his patients with a cold adaptation because it, it, it increases yeah. fat loss, it, it can treat diabetes, it um it regulates your leptin. And uh, and it's also really 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 great for healing. Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd let you guys know. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Ah, that's quite a story. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. That sounds like quite the extensive protocol. Yeah. Well, when I first started it, I did do a lot of that stuff. Maybe not completely to the letter like I didn't sit with 
you have to go out and buy ice every single day. That just wasn't going to happen for me. But I did put <laughs> ice on me every once in a while and, like, you know, put it, put two shirts on and put the ice in between that. Yeah. But he also talks about this other method that he has where you sit in a warm bathtub and you put the ice on your chest. So that temperature differential kind of makes mm. the water, I mean, the oxygen in your body flow from the warm part of your body up to the cold part. And he's okay. also put on um, like a cap and then put ice on his head. <laughs> and it's supposed <laughs> to increase blood flow to your brain. I tried that too, and I don't know. I think it was kind of worse than doing just a straight cold bath because I was just really hot <laughs> while I was sitting in the warm tub with the ice on my top and on my head. Hmm. <laughs> Crazy. So, Elliot, we've got a question in the uh, in the uh, the chat here from Sue Larue. She asks, "What about uh, cryogenic uh, chambers?" Are those worth it? They're becoming more popular lately. Does Jack Cruz talk about cryogenic chambers at all? Um, well, in his book, I haven't come across anything um, on cryogenic therapy, no. Just um, from what I've, I've read on his side, he doesn't really advocate it very strongly. He says that hmm. water is a lot more effective, cold water is a lot more effective than cold air. It's a hmm. dog. Well, um, yeah, I've I mean, done the cryogenic chamber, though. I think I have like four, four or five hmm. sessions where you stand in this metal tube, and hmm. you are either naked or in your undies, and they blast you with sub-zero air, oh, and you're supposed to like turn around slowly so the cold can touch all parts of your body. But I didn't feel the same effect that I did from cold therapy and plus you know it's expensive mm. yeah i mean yeah. He, he does he does say that it's 24 uh, water is 24 times more effective than just cold air so i would imagine uh, that um i mean i don't know how cold you'd have to get the air to, for it to be able to match um the level of cold adaptation you'd be able to achieve with um with water i'm not sure hmm this is reminding me of a, a story that I read a little while back about a uh, a Russian woman uh, who was quite old. I think she was in her 90s, and she had slept outside for many, many years. Like, she had actually gone and put her bed in her garden outdoors huh. um, and, and would sleep would sleep outside even in the winter. But of course, she used a, a blanket, but, uh, yeah, she would sleep outside in her bed and she was so cold adapted that she would walk down the street wearing like a dress in the middle of the winter and <laughs> that uh, there was one occasion where a, a police officer stopped her and thought that she was, you know, homeless or in trouble. And so he offered her some clothes and she was like, I don't want your clothes. Like, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some so Scandinavian countries where, the women have their babies in the strollers or the prams and they go to a cafe or whatever to do their business or their shopping. And they actually have an area where they have a space for you to put your stroller there and leave your baby outside while you're inside of the business when uh, you're shopping or whatever. And it can be like in the middle of winter. But, you know, I guess it's just part of their culture where they put their babies out in the cold and everything's okay. Wow. 
You know, that yeah. would never happen in the U.S. Job if you uh, tried that. I was <laughs> I wonder how much of this has to do with genetics, too, because, uh, you know, as we're talking, I was thinking, and I, also where I live, there's a large uh, Finnish population. A lot of Finns uh, immigrated here back in the day. And um, and I've, I've no, I know and have known a number of, of uh, old uh, Finnish people, uh, you know, by old, I mean like 70s and 80s um, or, or even older, who are extremely healthy, have beautiful skin, um, are very active, um, very little fatigue. And uh, there's a tradition in the Finnish culture of, of taking saunas, you know, a steam sauna, and then jumping into the snow uh, when you're done, mm. you know, and you're alternating back and forth. Um, yeah. and, and also, yeah. of course, you know, they live in, in northern Europe uh, and or in the northern United States and being very cold most of the time. Um, but, you know, that's not to discount. I also am aware that there are a lot of uh, extremely healthy uh, older folks who live in southern climates, you know, who are mm-hmm. adapted to that, who might live in like South America or in the uh, Caribbean or something like that. And so that's what makes me wonder, like, how much it has to do with uh with genetics and kind of what your your lineage is and and what your genes are adapted to, what works best for you. I think yeah. if it depends more maybe on the environment in which you live. I think the more that you are in sync with whatever environment that you happen to be living in, the healthier you are. So if you're in a cold environment and you adapt to that, no matter. Genetics, I think you would do okay, and the same would go for maybe living in a you know equatorial climate. Yeah, I think that maybe it has more to do with epigenetics. That maybe um, you know we all kind of have this inherent potential in us to be cold adapted, Um, but you know depending on what your environment is, certain genes are turned off as others are turned on. So, you know, by doing the cold protocol, you're kind of turning on those genes that. that uh, make you cold adapted. So I guess somebody who's living in an equatorial region probably doesn't need to do the cold adaptation because they they aren't really going to encounter that in their uh, in their environment. Um, although yeah. not to say that they wouldn't benefit from from uh, doing cold adaptation, uh, doing the kind of Jack Cruz hardcore cold adaptation protocol, um, just because of all the benefits that happen from turning on those genes. Yeah. Well, I think it also makes sense from a prepping standpoint, too, if one considers the climate changes that we're going through and all the talk and the scientific research that's coming out that's saying that we would be going into a mini ice age at least, I think mm-hmm. it would be a good idea to prepare yourself physically and mentally um, to adapt to the cold. And another thing about the cold is that if you purposely make yourself uncomfortable, it kind of gives you psychological benefits, not just because you can sit in a cold bath for an hour, but because you know that you have the strength to endure discomfort for that long. Okay. I think that can apply to a bunch of different situations in your life. Yeah, yeah strengthening mm-hmm. your will, strengthening your resolve, that kind of thing, for sure. And yeah, that's okay. that's kind of one of the things I think I'm really laming out on by avoiding the cold protocol, not <laughs> strengthening my resolve, giving in to that part of me that's like, nah, I don't want to do this. 
Doug, maybe you just have like Caribbean, Caribbean ancestry. For you, for you all that live in the snow, oh, to to dig a nice hole and just just jump in and let the snow, uh, I call it happy. (laughs) (laughs) Forget going to buy an ice. Yeah, that's it. Time. <laughs> yeah, late use of the weather, man. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, my my roommate actually played around with the idea of jumping into the snow, and he ended up with frostbite. So. <laughs> yeah, it is. So the snow in my underwear. So yeah, that's one thing that maybe should be stated. You need to you need to be careful on that front for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, Even with putting ice packs on yourself. You have to take it off every few minutes just to make sure you yeah. have uh, imaged a couple areas <laughs> on my body. Yeah, we also have uh, here what's ca- called the uh, Polar Bear Challenge. I don't know if oh, you guys yeah. or if our listeners are familiar, but, yeah, they will, uh, on, a, uh, on a frozen body of water, cut a hole in the ice and then, you know, jump in and then jump out um, in literally freezing water. Um, but usually when that's done in a public setting, it's usually kind of like a community thing. And they always mm-hmm. have a, uh, they have a portable sauna right there and they have an ambulance handy in case anything mm-hmm. goes wrong. Um, and I, you know, I wow. do think that that's wise, wow. you know, like it is, it is fun if you're, you know, slightly masochistic, I guess it's, it's fun <laughs> to, to, to do that. And I like the whole jumping in the snow kind of thing as well. Um, but you, you do also have to be careful. You can really, um, you can get frostbite and hurt yourself by overdoing it. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, Jonathan, because this is New Year's Day, and there's a, a New Year's Day tradition here in Toronto that uh, every you know a bunch of people will go and like jump into Lake Ontario on uh, mm-hmm. on New Year's Day. And you know, this year is probably not as cold as it has been in past years because we're just now starting to get into something that resembles winter. Um, it's been quite warm here, but uh, yeah, as far as I know, they're doing it this year as well. They might be in there right now as we speak. Yeah, I'm all for cold therapy, especially cold therapy in a natural body of water. But I draw the line at jumping into anything. <laughs> I'll leave down into the water. I'm not going to jump into it. Fair enough. It's shocking yeah, enough. If you've got a high high body temperature, like say you've got a big fluffy coat on or something, and then you take it off straight away, and then you jump into an icy cold river, you can give yourself a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Put yourself into shock. Yeah. So you do have to be careful with those things, I think. Yeah, it's good to have supervision for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess one of the other things that uh, we're going to talk about today is just the general idea of new year's resolutions and so we've been talking about you know some things that you can do in the new year and uh i wanted to raise the question uh with you guys just to kind of uh spur in the discussion i guess a little bit what uh what do you think is the psychological mechanism of the new year's resolution like we talk about this from like a i guess like a mental health perspective um Mm. you know we've talked in the past about how to change how you approach certain situations, um, how to change your outlook, uh, how to kind of inspect your own mental health and observe yourself and what your reactions are. And uh, I'm, I'm very curious because, you know, on the whole, I think it's a generally positive thing 
to make New Year's resolutions. I think it can also be a negative, too, because it's just kind of a rote um, thing that we do. And, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to do that this year, and then you forget about it because it was New Year's, and that's what you do. You say you're going to do stuff the next year. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Is it generally, generally positive or a mix of the two? Well, I think you kind of need to prepare. You need to do more than just kind of say, okay, this year I'm going to do this. Because, um, you know, interesting, I've I've been reading um, Dr. Joe Dispenza's book called uh, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And uh, Zoya actually turned me on to that, uh, that, that book. And at first I was kind of like, oh, okay, this is just another uh, you create your own reality, the secret type thing. But it's actually really good. It, it gets into a lot of the... Uh, the the neurobiology behind these sorts of things and one thing that he points out it actually one thing that i really like about it is that it draws a lot of uh parallels in my mind between um some of the more esoteric stuff out there like gurdjieff's work in particular and uh and aspensky and uh i i he kind of gives like a a neurological basis to a lot of the stuff that gurdjieff was talking about um and one of the things that he he, he talks about is that uh you know we have these uh, neuronal connections in our brain that are kind of what we have established um, over years of life um, connections that, you know, so, so when you have a thought, it kind of will always go down this same pathway, this well-worn pathway that you've, you've uh, put into your brain. So if you ever want to change that kind of thing, it, it's actually quite difficult because your body is totally primed to always go in the same direction. So, you know, you've primed yourself to when you see a piece of chocolate cake to eat it. You know, it's there. There isn't. Uh, you you haven't. Uh, you, the, the the connections there are kind of really um, established. So if you kind of mentally just say, well, I'm not going to eat chocolate cake anymore. You know, it, it, at first you might. You know, a couple of times you'll be able to do that. But those because those connections are so ingrained, it's very easy to just fall back into that pattern of of doing what you've always done in the past. Which is, I think, why most New Year's resolutions, and I mean, I don't have statistics in front of me or anything, but I think most people fail, <laughs> fail in their resolutions because they're, they're, there's just the habit of being themselves that is so ingrained. So I think, um, you know, you need to kind of have the right mental attitude going into these sorts of things and be prepared to work to uh, change those habits. Yeah, and I think you have to know yourself well enough to know uh, how you think and how you operate and what excuses and what narratives you might come up with to mm-hmm. justify you falling off the wagon or, you know, deciding to not to uh, follow through on your resolution during mm-hmm. any given day. Um, but I think yeah. that a lot of this New Year's resolution thing, I mean, who <laughs> thought of this? I mean, when did it even start? I think a lot huh. of it is just the tradition. Everybody knows that people make New Year's resolutions, and so they say, okay, well, I'm going to make a resolution too. I wonder hmm. how serious people really are about resolving to do something just because it's the New Year. I mean, I make resolutions, yeah. but they're not necessarily the New Year's. I purposely don't make them on the New Year's just because I don't want to be a part of the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, to answer your th- question, Doug, uh, there was an article on thought why people fail to keep their New Year's resolution, and mm. I think it was a journal of psychology. They said about eight percent of people keep uh, their resolutions. So. Wow, those are not very good odds. 
<laughs> you can't wow. discount the other times of the year when people actually resolve to do something and they succeed. Yeah. So just mm. because it's on New Year's, I don't think it, it should be either praised or poo-pooed. Yeah. Well, I was reading an interesting wow. article uh, recently. Um, it was just in one of those, uh, I don't know if you guys have this in your city too, but here in Toronto they kind of have these uh, little kind of you know, newspaper type things that they hand out on the subway. They're just kind of a quick read. It's mostly fluff. Actually, it's all fluff, really. But uh, there was a, there was an interesting article in there where there was a, a psychologist talking about uh, the phenomenon of New Year's resolutions. And one of the things he was saying is that it's it's actually not a good thing because people will put off making changes in their life until uh, New Year's. So, you know, around maybe end of November, early December, you might be like, you know what, I got to lose weight in the in the new year. But you put that off until New Year's Day. And up until then, you just kind of like it's justified in, in keeping your old habits the way they were. Um, to really make changes, it's much better to kind of work in the moment, not procrastinate and put things off because it's kind of like uh, you're, you're putting all the burden on your future self. And if leading up until that point, You've, you're, you're ingraining those habits, uh, those bad habits, then come New Year's, it's going to be that much more difficult to actually make the change. And being yeah, realistic. And it, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, it just being realistic, right? So setting realistic goals for yourself, you know, when you set this huge expectation for yourself, the, the possibility of pulling that up is, pulling it off is a lot slimmer. But if you're mm. realistic in your goal, like my goal for the new year is to go to the gym at least once this year. <laughs> that's not <laughs> a realistic goal. <laughs> Set that bar high. <laughs> but, you know, this idea of biting off more than you can chew, right? Or, mm-hmm. or um, you know, it's almost like you set yourself up for failure instead of being mm-hmm. re- realistic about what you can do. Maybe yeah. that's why they don't get fulfilled. <laughs> well, in that respect, it's easy to see why so many people fail, too, because they probably do set unrealistic goals, and it's like kind of they, they go through like two or three weeks of torturing themselves to try and like achieve these, these massive goals, and then they just say, oh, forget it. They, you know, they give up on it. So, yeah, I think, I think setting realistic goals or, you know, giving yourself a timeline to achieve something. You know, if you want to lose weight in the new year, you know, don't expect to, to go onto a hardcore diet January 1st. Like maybe work up to what you're doing. Take small steps. You know, that, that mm-hmm. might be a better way to approach it. Yeah, I, think, I think one of the problems with, um, with putting off making changes in our lives to say, Say um, like a New Year's resolution, right, okay, I'm going to stop eating chocolate cake in the New Year. I'm going to stop eating chocolate cake on January the 1st, okay? So up until January the 1st, you're probably going to eat so much chocolate cake that it's just going to make it 10 times worse because you're going to, you're going to be thinking, well, okay, I can't have any more chocolate cake on January the 1st, so I'm going to eat as much as I possibly can put in my mouth, you know? And it, you just you're gonna get into a into a state where it's gonna be a lot harder to actually do it. Whereas, you know, you, you could just say, well, I, I'm I'm gonna try and uh, cut down my chocolate cake over the mm. next few weeks, and then eventually my end term goal is to eventually have no chocolate cake. Yeah. Yes. Don't eat an entire chocolate cake on December 31st. 
<laughs> and expect to not crave chocolate cake on January the 2nd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's also recognizing so. that habitual nature, right? So we've talked about this when we talked about the addiction show, but having these habits like eating chocolate cake. So instead of eating that chocolate cake, maybe you'll go run a few circles in your yard or uh, sit down and uh, drink a cup of tea, but replacing those habits of eating chocolate cake with something positive, mm-hmm. different. Yeah. 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 Keto cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what you said about, um, you know, tackling something right away is also important as opposed to waiting. Um, like, it, you know, one example is uh, cleaning, you know, and I know there are a lot of people who are kind of automatically uh, clean and, and just do that without having to think about it too much. I am not one of those people. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like if there's something on the floor, I definitely, if I go with my habits, I'm I'm more prone to like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, I'll get to that later. <laughs> But I, I am much more on top of things if I'm like, you know what, it takes me two seconds to, like, put that mm-hmm. shirt away, you know, or mm-hmm. take that tissue and throw it in the garbage, you know, or whatever it is. So I'm just going to do it right now. And then if you get into a habit of doing that, um, you know, you're much more effective and it causes much less stress because when you're thinking about doing stuff later, uh, you have all of these, you know, line items piling up in the back of your mind. And I think that applies as well to any other changes that uh, that people want to make, and that yeah, for yeah. sure. The the yeah. other thing that that makes me think of is like, I know for me, um, I'm very like research driven. Um, I, I'm a curious person, and so I like to look into things and learn about things. And um, I'm generally much more effective at whatever it is, like gaining a new skill or doing something new if I take the time to sit down and read about it and learn about it, like learn about the history uh, of whatever it is, um, you know, what other people have done in this regard, you know, what do the journals say, what's the, uh, what's the consensus and what's the opposition to the consensus and doing a lot of research, uh, that kind of turns my brain on and gets me into a mode of thinking about whatever it is. And uh, if I apply that to like the diet, um, you know, I'd say if people want to lose weight, as an example, in the new year, you know, instead of just like, you know, okay, well, like you said, I'm not going to have any more chocolate cake or, you know, I'm going to I'm going to run, you know, a mile a day or something like that. Instead of just jumping into something like that, um, I guess if you're like me, like maybe sit down and read about it first, you know, and look up what mm-hmm. these things are. Um, one example being like the ketogenic diet. Like I was extremely surprised when I first got into it to realize that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a moderately active person. You know, I like to ride a bike and go for walks and stuff like that. Um, uh, but I'm not, you know, at the gym every day. But once I started cutting down carbs and sugar and uh, going towards the, uh, the high fat end of things, the weights dropped off. I mean, it was really amazing. I lost a lot of weight um, the first time I got into this like, uh, a few years ago. Um, and that was really surprising. So I think that other people, too, would be surprised in the same regard if they, you know, looked that up and kind of got into the information around the topic, um, got interested in it, sparked that curiosity, and then be like, okay, well, now 
I'm mentally prepared, so I'm going to try this thing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because that goes into um, what Joe Dispenza talks about quite a bit. Um, you know, what he, he, he talks about is like it's kind of like transferring these things from thought into a state of being. Right. So he, he talks about, you know, you, you'll have like in a lot of cases, what will happen is you'll have a thought and you'll be like, I think I would be better off if I lost some weight. And then, you know, it kind of ends up staying in that realm of thought where you'll think about it a lot, but it doesn't actually translate into action. So what he talks about doing is, is actually working on the state of being, you know, where you kind of embody that. Like it's kind of like your body lives in the present. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't actually look into the future at all. That's the, the realm of your thought. So you kind of have to almost embody that state in order to make that change. So you have to kind of like embody the lifestyle of a person who does exercise regularly or does have a better diet um, rather than just kind of sitting around and thinking about it. And although I think the, the research thing is very important, like, I, like you were saying, Jonathan, I think that, that it, it, in a lot of cases that can kind of inspire you to make those changes. Um, but the actual change itself doesn't happen just in thought alone. It kind of has to, you have, you have to kind of embody it so that it's incorporating thought and emotion and the body as well. So, yeah, it's kind of like, I, I guess that's one way uh, well, not one way, it's probably the way to actually make yourself successful with these kinds of resolutions is that you kind of have to embody that state, um, not just kind of keep it in the in the realm of fantasy. Mm-hmm. So it's the famous yeah. thing, fake it till you make it? <laughs> yeah, it, kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, uh, I guess that people would be more effective, you know, if they were to uh, to really engage fully, like you're saying, you know, like you can't you can't just fantasize, and on the other side, you can't just like jump into something without having knowledge about it. So you need to have mm-hmm. this kind of holistic approach where you learn and apply at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and getting the emotions involved is a big part of it too. Because uh, you can't, you, you know, neural connections, new neural connections are made not by thought alone, but by the, the combination of thought and emotion. You know, when you think about the, the memories that are clearest for you, they're going to be ones that uh, had a lot of emotional weight behind them. So changing those uh, neural pathways uh, involves not just like thinking about it and wanting it really bad, but actually getting kind of the emotion behind it. So, you know... Um, thinking about what you would be like in that state and how much better you'd feel and how, how much healthier you would be um, and really kind of getting that um, emotion involved. Mm-hmm. Well, would you say uh, that... Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry John. Um, Doug, um, since you've read that book, um, would you say that through actually apply say 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 learning about something you, you gain knowledge of something but just thinking about changing changing one of your behaviors that's not enough and what you, you said you said that there needs to be an emotional component involved as well um so say say through applying your knowledge um and almost reaping the benefits from uh the fact that you've that you've actually changed one of your behaviors would would that constitute that that emotional um, component? If do you, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I think so. Um, 
I have to admit, I've not done the book yet. I'm only about halfway through. Right, <laughs> I do. I, I find it pretty. It, it's pretty fascinating, though. So I guess I couldn't help but uh, but talk about it somewhat. Um, and I, so I, I'm hardly an expert, um, but I I think so. Like I think um, getting the kind of emotional component behind it, um, you know, thinking about, um, you know, just getting yourself into a state where you're a state of being where you're in that future self. You're kind of in that result. Um, I think is I think is the idea behind it. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, yeah, sort of. I have to read the book. I have to read the book. What's the name of the book again, oh. Doug? Uh, it's called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And the author is Dr. Joe Dispenza. He's actually got a really good um, TED Talk on uh, on YouTube that's that's worth checking out. It's about 20 minutes long. Um, if you just look up uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza TED, you'll probably find it. Um, yeah, worth worth watching. He really goes, you know, he talks about the neuroscience, but it's not complicated. It's very it's fairly easy to grasp. I'm just going to drop the, uh, the the link for that uh, TED talk into our chat here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't he speak about um, say when you've got um, inbuilt sort of um, behaviours that you're um, say like uh, <laughs> I'll bring it back to my favourite example: eating chocolate cake. Okay. So when you see a, a, a chocolate cake. Uh, it's your um, your automatic behavior is to eat that chocolate cake, and that's because uh, you've got neural pathways which are so deeply ingrained that it, it's like the path of least resistance for your brain to go down. And so, whereas if you actually take a step outside of yourself, if that makes any sense, and use what is called metacognition, so instead of identifying with your thoughts, you take a, a, a more impartial sort of third-person perspective and you observe yourself thinking and the way that you're thinking, which I think, I think that's the definition of, or, or that's the sort of description of metacognition. I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, I um, think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by, by using metacognition, what you can do is actually bypass the already like heavily ingrained neural pathways that are deeply set in your brain but by using metacognition you can essentially bypass those and gradually um form new ones but it's not an easy thing to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's what i took from the video anyway yeah yeah no i yeah, think that's really that's interesting great. doug it was really interesting I think, yeah, I think that that's basically what he's saying. And it's, it's kind of that state of metacognition is where you have to kind of uh, work from. Because if you're yeah. kind of already in, you know, it's like, it's like uh, in, in Gurdjieff parlance, he talks about being identified, right? And, the, and the, the kind of the act of being identified is being in those neural pathways. You know, when you're in those well-worn pathways, you can't kind of see out of it, right? It's like you're, you're on a, a highway with no exits, and you will kind of go in that direction that you, you're, you, you form the habit of going in all the time. But it's kind of from that state of metacognition where you can kind of like, it's like you're looking at the highway. And you see, you know, maybe before you even get on that highway, there's another route. And you could take that instead. So it's kind of like getting yourself into that state of self-observation 
or metacognition where you can actually make those changes. Yeah. Cool. Well, we have the uh, the link to that uh, talk in the chat, and then Zoya has also shared with us another uh, interesting interview there. So if you have access to the Blog Talk Radio chat, uh, check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about uh, DreamWork. That was something mm-hmm. else that we wanted to talk about today, and I, I think it's it's pretty interesting and something that people may have not uh, tried out yet, and it's something kind of... Uh, you know, on the fascinating side of things that you could delve into in the new year. Um, uh, Erica, did you have any uh, kind of information for us about watching TV? Like that might be an interesting place to start out. Uh, One of our points here is that watching TV makes you less able to remember dreams. Yeah, we were, you know, it's it's interesting when you um, get around people and the, the topic of dreams come up and, you know, people say, oh, what did you dream about last night? Or did you have a dream? Or or I had the strangest dream, you know, and, and it, it's everyone has them. You know, there's um, been research done that um, in the Jungian psychoanalytic view that um, you dream five to seven dreams every night. And uh, that's about 35 to 49 dreams per week. So... Mm-hmm kind of the question is, is, you know, what are your dreams and um, what is it? It's, it's kind of like this message, you know, it can be insights. And um, mentioning the thing about TV, I found personally, I've been doing some dream work. And if I watch television before I go to sleep or spend too much time on the computer late into the evening, I don't remember my dreams. It's, it's Mm. almost like a, maybe the blue light or the electromagnetic impulses in the eyes, or I'm not sure really what it is. But I find that if I turn off all electronics an hour to two hours before I go to sleep, that um, I have a much better chance of remembering remembering my dreams. Has Mm -hmm. anybody else had that experience? Or, you know, there's definitely people that say they never dream, which is not true. Apparently everyone Mm -hmm. dreams. Yeah. Well, I've noticed if I <clears throat> watch a movie or something before I go to bed or stay too late on the computer, whatever it is that I'm reading can influence what I dream about. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. that can be a good thing or a bad thing. <clears throat> but there mm-hmm. were times like um, if I had some dilemma that I wanted to work through. Now, particularly remember, not that this is a dilemma or anything, but I was in junior high school <clears throat> and we had to give a presentation in French class about some topic. I had no idea what to talk about. So I was just thinking about it and thinking about it before I went to bed, and then I dreamed in French about what I would talk about. Wow. <laughs> and then the next day I presented it, and I what happened. But, um, yeah, I guess that would be, um, if we're talking about resolution. Like if we are really committed to uh, accomplishing some kind of goal, maybe we could ponder on that before we go to sleep and our dreams can present us with some solutions or scenarios to accomplish it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There are examples, well, uh, too, of uh, people who, like, I, I can't remember the, the scientist, but the guy who discovered 
the, the shape of the benzene molecule. Apparently, he was working oh, on this yeah. problem for a while, and it actually came to him in a dream. So I, I do think that there is potential to, like, you know, your, your dreams are kind of co uh, communicating things from uh, your subconscious, maybe even outside of that, like the collective conscious, I, I don't actually know. But, um, you know, I, I think that there is valuable information that can be gleaned from, uh, from dreams. And kind of, you know, in, you think about dreaming, you're in this kind of dissociated state where you kind of aren't in that habit of being yourself. And, you know, to kind of open yourself up to other possibilities um, or other, um, even just different viewpoints on certain things can, uh, can be really valuable, I think. Yeah, for our listeners who are interested in what Doug was talking about, there's an article that was carried on SOT back in 2014 called Dreaming Can Lead to Amazing Creative Breakthroughs. And they do talk about the, the molecular structure of benzene and, and Frederick August Kukuli's discovery uh, came to him in a dream, but also um, the invention of the sewing machine and Einstein's special theory of relativity. And even James Cameron's The Terminator movie came to him in a dream. <laughs> but what, but you, what you're speaking about is so true, Doug. Um, we've talked several times on the show about Dr. Clarissa Pacola Estes, and yeah. she has a great little audio book for people who are interested in kind of what, what she calls fishing your dreams for insights and clarity. Um, and it's just basically based on Jungian analysis and kind of a, a realistic way to approach using your dream work for insight. And she's such a great storyteller, as I've shared before, but she says that dreams are like a letter from home from a deep place in the psyche, and um, it's a picture of yourself, your life, your psychic state um, of the moment that you may not be able to see. So just your own ego perspective, you know, dreams um, save people from blindness and blundering, from mm. failing to see or sense something important. And then she talks about how dreams tell a story, uh, uh, stories that aren't obvious in daylight. And and she does say that everyone dreams and they um, give information about a reality that is not normally available to your conscious mind. So they help us find our way in life. They lead us forward in certain ways at times. Dreams seem almost like an instruction from the divine. The dream channeling, or what she calls the dream maker, um, is your psyche showing you stories and bits and pieces, and it's not—it's never like uh, an outline or what the the um, you know the conscious mind would look at, but it's more images and um, kind of archetypes and um, flashes. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners, if you're interested, she gives three um, kind of insights on how to work with your dreams. So she talks about how um, remembering your dreams is like strengthening a muscle, you know, just like exercising. You need to continually work with it to kind of strengthen the effects. And I've been practicing the last few months and I definitely notice with practice that you can recall more. As I said, you know, we have five to seven dreams a night. And so um, maybe you won't remember all of them. But even if you remember one, 
She said that it's great to have a notebook and a pencil by your bed and maybe even a pen with a little light on it. So when you wake up first thing in the morning, you start to write down all the nouns that are associated in your dream. So person, place, or thing. And then you can go through this little um, strategy of going back and and making associations with those nouns. So say if you dream about a field, um, what in your memory is a field represent to you? And you start putting adjectives in and description. And she really um, emphasizes the importance of staying away from like dream dictionaries and a one kind of one fits all approach to it, but that it's very uh, individualized. And um, as you start repeating and writing down and making these associations with small little things that you see in your dream, whether it's a field or a person or food, that um, you start to strengthen those memories. And as you write, some of those pieces start to come back together. She used the analogy of like elephants hooking um, trunks, you know, and and each elephant holds the other elephant's trunk. And the same comes with dream interpretation. You start to remember little bits and pieces. And if you uh, write them down, then it's more starts coming to it. She also suggested if you're not so much of a writer to have a little tape recorder by your bed and just wake up and, you know, I had the strangest dream, I it was zombie apocalypse or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> and and to just um, really start to work that muscle of the brain, mm. you know. She said that there's, um, you know, the, that there's three important things about dreams is that they're um, insights into our real life. It's absolute knowledge um, for your own inner world and what might be going on and what is really going on. You know, things that sometimes we don't admit to ourselves. She said it's important to, like, call a spade a spade. You know, if you have toxic people in your life and your dreams are kind of sending you these messages that, you know, that you need to look at something that you're not willing to look at in your waking life. And that dreams strengthen us, um, it gives us resolve, and it helps us move forward. So as we were saying earlier, like you, you're struggling with something. If you say to yourself before you go to bed, you know, dream maker, I want to remember my dreams. I have this issue. You know, do I take this job? Do I make this move? And, and then kind of fish your dreams at night to find some solution. That makes sense. I mean, has anyone had that experience? Uh, that that totally makes sense to me. I've um, I've had the experience of of finding solutions to problems, like for uh, work overnight, because um, I I do design and, and write code, uh, and oftentimes there's a really you know particularly nasty like code issue uh, that I'm not able to figure out, and I'm up late working on it, and if I just calm down. You know, turn the computer off, come away from it, go to bed, and think like, let's just, you know, let's let's figure this out while we're dreaming. Um, <clears throat> maybe not in that literal of terms, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to sleep on this. Uh, and then more often than not, when I wake up, it's it's not like the answer necessarily came to me in my dream, but that when I wake up, I'm I'm aware of what I need to do. Um, so it's, it is kind of an interesting dynamic. But what you were talking about reminds me of an exercise that I used to do. Uh, years ago, and I haven't done in quite a quite a long time, 
which is very similar to what uh, Clarissa Estes uh, says. That was to it, it's like establishing a trigger. Um, so, uh, and this was based on something I had read also years ago. Um, was putting a glass of water on the bedside table, and then <clears throat> before I would go to bed, I would say, I you know I will remember my dreams tonight, and like concentrate on the water, and then kind of get into like a meditative state and concentrate on like one particular place or like imagine the molecules of the water to get yourself into sort of a meditative state and then declare this intention, and then take a, a, a sip of the water. And then up, upon waking up in the morning, uh, to take a drink of that water, and it kind of worked as a trigger. And I did find that when I did that with intent, that the, uh, that the dreams would come back, the ones that I had forgotten. Yeah, I think intent is a big thing there. Um, there's lots of, I've read lots of different uh, methods for remembering your dream. One is like throughout the day to think about it as well to kind of come back to it and be like, I, I, you know, set that intent. I want to remember my dreams. Um, and I, I think that uh, there, there's a lot of different methods for actually remembering uh, your dreams. And I, but I think that, you know, putting the effort behind it and setting that intention is, is a lot of what the work is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I know it's interesting what you said when we started talking about this, uh, that, uh, you have an average of five to seven dreams per night because I usually remember like one to two, uh, and they mm-hmm. will, um, mm-hmm. you know, they'll stick with me unless I'm concentrating on something else. Like if I wake up and I have a deadline and I have to work on something else, then it'll fade from memory. But if I mm-hmm. have kind of a slow morning and I'm not, ha- I'm not having to focus on something else, then they'll stick with me, and then I'll start thinking about it. And when I think about like, hmm, I wonder what that dream meant, then I'll remember it more throughout the day. Um, but I, I don't know. My, I don't know if this is the case with everybody. But my, my dreams are usually pretty weird. They're like animated from the spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think most people think have, most- you know, those kind of experiences because again, it's it's your subconscious, right? It's all these images and motifs and weird things. Like, you know, you have. I've had experiences where uh, I think about someone, and then that night they're in my dream. Or for mm. for many years, if I watched movies, again, back to that idea of TV, uh, especially violence, um, I dream about the movie all night long, you know? So it, it's it's like uh, that psychic space. you got to be wary of that junk messaging that comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I know I've noticed with myself, I, I will have different types of dreams. Like in some dreams, I'm the direct participant in the dream and it's all like, you know, I, I inhabit the dream world and I'm, I'm moving throughout it. But I have other dreams where it's almost like I'm watching a movie, you know, where everything is kind of happening and happening in front of me, but I'm not um, a direct participant. I'm just kind of watching it. So I, I don't know what that means. I don't know what the, what the difference is there, but, uh, but it's pretty interesting. Um, I, another thing I just wanted to mention when we were doing the prep uh, call for this uh, this show, uh, Gabby mentioned that she had to set the intention of making the dreams uh, decipherable to her, like to be able to understand it. So she had to kind of set that intention because otherwise it would just be a bunch of like really crazy symbolic stuff that she didn't really know what to make of. Um, 
but by setting that intention that it was that she would be able to like that her conscious mind would be able to um at least partially interpret what was being said in her dreams was important like kind of an important step for her to do yeah it's like taking the essence you know and where do these kind of inner reactions or things that are happening where are they taking place in my daily life yeah i don't know if that makes sense but yeah no it does for sure it does yeah i think the idea of practice is definitely really important i mean if you take anything else as an example like you would expect to say just be able to lift 200 pounds you know without first working your way to that by practicing and learning the technique of how to lift weight um, you know, it's the same thing with dreams. You know, if people say, I can't remember my dreams. It's like, well, because you don't practice. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's, uh, for my part, it's something I would like to try uh, for this year, uh, just to pay more attention to that. And I really liked, Erica, the technique that you said uh, about writing the nouns from the dreams. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. for me, like, whenever... Because I've I've done writing in the past and like I took creative writing in in school and stuff like that and so in the past when I've tried to write my dreams down I wake up and I start writing this narrative and then it goes away from what the actual dream was because now I'm thinking of like a story or something you know and, uh, and like, so uh, well, it, it is a very interesting technique yeah and in this this audio book that she has. Um, she talks about how, you know, there's not only one valid interpretation, you know, so you dream about an eagle and everyone says, oh, that means you're soaring hot, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's like um, she said, it's dream interpretation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dream interpretation is like translating a foreign language, right? So there's things that get lost, just like you were saying, Jonathan, when you're trying to take the imagery that you experienced in the night and translate it onto paper, right? So you start to get yeah. lost in the narrative instead of, of just looking for kind of those messages or those uh, motifs, you know. And, and she also explains how culturally, you know, I'm just using the eagle as one example, but for people in different cultures, you know, an eagle represents different things or a feather represents different things, you know, and 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 not getting lost in the translation. Yeah. And I think that's that what's interesting there is she talks about not relying on these kind of dream dictionaries or online interpretations of what the symbols mean because they can be so personal. Um mm-hmm. so I think that that's that's another kind of important step and one of the the methods I've used in the past I haven't been doing dream uh, dream analysis recently, but um, when I was a little bit more active with it, I would try and look at the emotional weight behind certain symbols, um, try and, and, and kind of be like, well, what does this actually mean to me? And look at more maybe the emotional tone of a dream rather than specifically the actions that happened within it. So I, I, I think that that can often, you know, if you wake up from a dream and you dreamt about a specific symbol, you know, whether you were uh, experiencing anxiety in that dream or uh, at a, like a peaceful state of calm um, will change a lot how you interpret that and what is actually being uh, communicated to you. So I mm-hmm. think that, that kind of looking at it from a more holistic kind of perspective is important as well. Yeah, that is definitely important. I mean, like, you know, in the, in the Chinese culture, uh, generally white uh, represents death. 
So if hmm. I dream that I'm in a white room, you know, does that mean that I'm going to die? Like, no, I'm, I'm not Chinese. I didn't grow up with that. So I, I, don't, I don't have that frame of reference. You know, it probably means I need to paint the second floor of my house because I've been putting that off for six months. <laughs> yes, it's a letter from home, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think one... Uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, kind of bringing this back to kind of New Year's resolutions, like this this is kind of a method where, you know, because a lot of people, uh, I think where a lot of people trip on, uh, trip up on, on making resolutions if they want to do that or making changes is, is a lack of guidance, not really knowing what to, what to do, what steps to take, and kind of what's going on in your life that maybe needs to be worked on. So I think that this kind of ties back in because the, the, the dream analysis is kind of like getting that outside perspective. Even though it might not be completely outside, at least it's outside of your, your habits and your, your kind of regular conscious self. So it's a way to kind of get some guidance or at least maybe point you in a direction of something that you should be paying more attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, she talks about how the dream... The dream maker doesn't have the censorship mechanism that the waking ego has, mm-hmm. and so and she just uses dream maker as as a term to kind of give uh, language to the process. But um, the the dream maker will put together odd and unusual associations, linking symbols together in ways the ego has a really hard time thinking of when you're awake, mm-hmm. right? So it's like this whole kind of other world you're experiencing in the night and then in the day you try and apply this kind of more rigid sensor mechanism way of thinking and you kind of lose the deeper insight that may be there. Mhm. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating area um I think the, you know the idea that you could you know, pull real information out of your dreams and not, you know, not prophetic, not necessarily like the Edgar Casey kind of thing. And, you know, that may happen, um, but not, not to approach it with that uh, idea in mind, but just real practical feedback from your subconscious about your daily life and the things that are going on. I agree. Um, let's see. Let's, uh, Let's talk a little bit about just just real quick because we're we're running kind of short on time and we want to go to Zoya's segment. Um, but uh, journaling, you know, we're talking about things that we can do in the new year. Um, so you know, up until now, we've talked about a little bit of preparedness and uh, you know, changing your diet and changing the way you approach uh, how you prepare for potential disaster situations, cold adaptation. Um, dream work, some, just some interesting things that you might be able to try this year. Um, journaling is another one, and that's something I know I've had a, um, a lot of benefit from. I don't do it every day, um, but when I do, uh, it's extremely helpful. And oftentimes, uh, for me, it manifests as just you know writing my thoughts down. Uh, it mm-hmm. helps me to process things much more. Um, and I know, uh, just a, a quick aside, like, when I was younger and my, uh, my dad was a professor and so he would help me like with my schoolwork. And he always, he always said, if you're trying to memorize something or if you're trying to remember something for a test, write it down because when you write mm-hmm. it down and you go through the, through the action of translating that from your mind onto the paper and the physical motion and the concentration that involves that that cements it much more. So, um, I think that can help too, just with thinking, 
you know, on a daily basis. So what, um, do you guys have any experience with that? Yeah, you know, there's a great article on SOT that addresses just what you mentioned, Jonathan. It's called Developing Your Thinking Skills Through Writing. Um, it's by the Increased Brain Power website. And, and they talk just about that, that, you know, writing clarifies your thoughts. Um, it also helps you establish firmer memories, right? So just as you were saying, this is why we're all advised to take notes in school, right? It helps your thinking, and then you get the pen and paper, and the whole connection, you know, the fine motor connection between your brain and your hand and getting it down on paper, it also gives you new insight. And um, I, I found it's excellent help. That's how I, I do all my studying is I write everything down. Me too. Maybe as I get older, my memory is failing, so at least I can... <laughs> well, let me check my notes. I know it's there somewhere. <laughs> but it comes from practice, too, right? So you got to practice it. And, and um, I do a process called the morning pages. And for our listeners who are interested, you can just Google it, the morning pages. Uh, Julia Cameron, it's a, it's a writing activity that was developed to help... Uh, Creative people break through blocks, whether you're a writer or a painter or an artist. And it's basically just three pages every morning right when you wake up, what they call stream of consciousness writing. So you just get the paper and you start writing. Don't worry about spelling or punctuation. You just get it out. And it doesn't have to be three big binder papers. It can be a little tiny notebook. But I've uh, come to term it the daily dump. So you get up first thing in the morning and you anything that's on your mind or plaguing, you can even be your dreams, you just start writing. And it takes about 10 or 15 minutes. And um, I will say some days you don't, and she talks about this in her book, it's called The Artist's Way, about how you don't want to do it. So the whole time you can just write, I don't want to write, this is stupid, I hate this, you know, but you just keep writing, you just keep doing it. And um, I found it's, fantastic it's very great uh kind of emotional mental release so things that may be plaguing you you just write it down you know i hate my dog it's on my nerves whatever it is you know <laughs> just get it out get it out and uh yeah, you can go back and read it or not i don't go back and read it but unless you want to admit that you're completely insane yeah <laughs> I've uh, really done a little sad. bit of journaling. In schools, they're not teaching longhand or cursive writing anymore. Mm -hmm. No. Another yeah. example of how schools are not for education. They're just for dumbing people down. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I use journaling a little bit in the past. I haven't done it as much as I should. I'd actually like to get more into it. Oh, maybe I'll make a New Year's resolution for that one. But, um, yeah, I, I found that, that when I'm trying to work out some kind of problem in my life, like some, some kind of issue that's going on, the, the writing uh, exercise, now we've, there's, there's articles on thought about this called the Pennebaker writing exercise, and it's basically like three consecutive days you write about a specific problem. And I found that doing that 
actually gave me amazing, you know, it's, it's kind of similar to dream work, that it's kind of like a way of, of working through this and getting a different perspective on things, like to see how your perspective changes from day to day um, in what you're writing. It really, like, by the end of, of the, the exercise, you kind of have a much more uh, wider view of the problem. So, yeah, I, I, I find it to be really, um, really helpful and something I need to start doing more. Yeah, I've noticed, too, that... Um it is very helpful, and just to note uh, from my own experience, because I'm on the computer a lot of the times, I have tried, uh, you know, journaling in, like, Microsoft Word and then saving all of my journals to a folder, like, with the dates, but it doesn't have the same effect, um, and I've definitely noticed that uh, in a really stark way that I, you know, oftentimes will forget about what I wrote um, and that the typing is, is not really, for me personally, an effective way of doing that. On the other hand, if I get, like, say, you know, go to the, the office shop or whatever um, and find a nice notebook or order a, a really nice notebook, like, you know, leather-bound or, um, you know, something that's attractive and is kind of a physical, um, you know, uh, object uh, that you can kind of have an attachment to um, and journal in that by hand, that that has much more of an effect in uh, in kind of cementing what you're writing down. I would personally mm. recommend you know writing by hand much more so than than trying to type uh, the journals. Exactly, I can I completely agree. Like even when you're just studying, um, not necessarily when you're just journaling, when you're just studying. Like I've tried to do it in my lectures, um, taking notes on the laptop, and none of it sticks. It's like I'm basically just trying to keep up with what they're saying with the letters. I'm not processing anything. Whereas I think when you've got like a physical, as you said, like a physical notebook, like an attractive sort of attractive looking notebook and, and you've got your pen in your hand and there's that, that connection. And I mean, perhaps it, it stems back to something uh, to do with our DNA or something because, you know, we've been writing for so long, how many thousands of years. Um, mm. Like um, there's, there's definitely a, a, a real big difference between uh, typing and writing, and you just don't really get that. Um, it's, it's, it's just not the same experience, is it? You know. Mm. <clears throat> Another thing I find helpful in that regard in, in writing is to ask myself questions, kind of like a little Q and A, um, and just to be very clear that this is not like any form of like channeling. You know, I'm not trying to, like, tap or shoulder or the Pleiades or anything like that. But uh, <laughs> but basically, uh, basically, just, you know, let's say, like, I did something dumb the day before, and I'll write down, like, what the hell were you thinking when you did that? Uh, and then I'll answer myself. And then I'll get mm -hmm. into, like, a Q&A conversation with myself in my journal. And that also brings up a lot of... Uh, you know, insights that uh, that I didn't have when I was just kind of thinking about or stressing about it in my mind. And getting that down mm -hmm. into a conversation format on the paper usually helps pretty well. That's really interesting. Yeah, I do something similar. I call it just interviewing myself. I'll just mm -hmm. write yeah. or present a situation and ask myself what I really think or feel about that situation or that person mm -hmm. and try not mm -hmm. to be politically correct or... You know, no one else is going to read it, so you don't have to worry about hurting somebody's feelings, but to really get to the nitty-gritty of what you really feel about something. Mm. <sighs> well, cool. So there's some uh, further ideas for, for what people can try out in the in the new year. 
Um, you know, and we've talked about resolutions, and by all means, make your resolutions. Not discouraging that, but just keep in mind, you know, what uh, what it entails, and don't stress yourself out. Um, be realistic about your goals. And sometimes, like we've been talking about here, a resolution can just be trying something new. You know, like I've, you know, let's say you've never done journaling before, and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to give that a shot, and um, you know, and just try it with some effort. And if it doesn't work out, it's not like you failed horribly. You know, you just uh, you just keep trying new things and keep trying to uh, expand your horizons and your skills, uh, exercise your brain. Um, I think that's something that's that's missing. Uh, from our our modern society, because uh, mm-hmm. we get sucked, we get sucked more and more into uh, you know entertainment and into our devices, um, you know, and into kind of like these petty squabbles and things like that. That we have we have gotten away from really embracing creativity and exercising our minds uh, and and our you know doing things in our physical environments. Um, so. Yeah, that's that's my rant about that. So yeah. <laughs> put your phone down. Put your phone rant down. Rant on, get a, get Jonathan. <laughs> start start writing on paper with a pen. Get a nice pen, you know. Um. Anyway, all right. Well, let's. We have a, a segment from Zoya here today. Um. So let's go to that, and uh, when we come back, we'll wrap up. Um. So here's Zoya, and we will be back after this. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Happy New 2016 Year, dear listeners. My name is Zoya, and in today's segment, I'm going to share with you a very interesting talk by Barbara Nettelson uh, Horowitz. Professor of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology at UCLA Medical School. She shares how a species-spanning approach to health can improve medical care of the human animal, especially when it comes to mental health. Now, why did I find this talk particularly interesting? Because as a student, in the course of my studies, I had an opportunity to observe more and more how similar we are to other inhabitants on this planet. And I'm not talking about the pretentious postmodernistic notion that in the end we are all just animals. But I'm talking about the idea that we are all interconnected and the well-being of one species has an influence on life of other creatures. What is also true, that in many cases animal world can teach us things that we got disconnected from and forgot that they are essential for our optimal life on this rock. So here's the talk and hopefully you'll find it as useful as I did. Have a great and insightful year, everyone. Ten years ago, I got a phone call that changed my life. At the time, I was a cardiologist at UCLA specializing in cardiac imaging techniques. The call came from a veterinarian at the Los Angeles Zoo. An elderly female chimpanzee had woken up with a facial droop, and the veterinarians were worried that she'd had a stroke. They asked if I'd come to the zoo and image the animal's heart to look for a possible cardiac cause. 
Now, to be clear, North American zoos are staffed by highly qualified, board-certified veterinarians who take outstanding care of their animal patients. But occasionally, they do reach in to the human medical community, particularly for subspecialty consultation, and I was one of the lucky physicians who was invited in to help. I had a chance to rule out a stroke in this chimpanzee and make sure that this gorilla didn't have a torn aorta. Evaluate this macaw for a heart murmur. Make sure that this California sea lion's pericardium wasn't inflamed. And in this picture, I'm listening to the heart of a lion after a life-saving collaborative procedure with veterinarians and physicians where we drained 700 cc's of fluid from the sac in which this lion's heart was contained. And this procedure, which I have done on many human patients, was identical with the exception of that paw and that tail. Now, most of the time, I was working at UCLA Medical Center with physicians discussing symptoms and diagnoses and treatments for my human patients. But some of the time, I was working at the Los Angeles Zoo with veterinarians discussing symptoms and diagnoses and treatments for their animal patients. And occasionally, on the very same day, I went on rounds at UCLA Medical Center and at the Los Angeles Zoo. And here's what started coming into very clear focus for me. Physicians and veterinarians were essentially taking care of the same disorders in their animal and human patients. Congestive heart failure, brain tumors, leukemia, diabetes, arthritis, ALS, breast cancer, even psychiatric syndromes like depression, anxiety, compulsions, eating disorders, and self-injury. Now, I've got a confession to make. Even though I studied comparative physiology and evolutionary biology as an undergrad, I had even written my senior thesis on Darwinian theory, learning about the significant overlap between the disorders of animals and humans, it came as a much-needed wake-up call for me. So I started wondering, with all of these overlaps, how was it that I had never thought to ask a veterinarian or consult the veterinary literature for insights into one of my human patients. Why had I never, nor had any of my physician friends and colleagues whom I asked, ever attended a veterinary conference? For that matter, why was any of this a surprise? I mean, look, Every single physician accepts some biological connection between animals and humans. Every medication that we prescribe 
or that we've taken ourselves or we've given to our families has first been tested on an animal. But there's something very different about giving an animal a medication or a human disease and the animal developing congestive heart failure or diabetes or breast cancer on their own. Now, maybe some of the surprise comes from the increasing separation in our world between the urban and the non-urban. You know, we hear about these city kids who think that wool grows on trees or that, you know, cheese comes from a plant. Well, today's human hospitals increasingly are turning into these gleaming cathedrals of technology. And this creates a psychological distance between the human patients who are being treated there and animal patients who are living in oceans and farms and jungles. But I think there's an even deeper reason. Physicians and scientists you know, we accept intellectually that our species, Homo sapiens, is merely one species, no more unique or special than any other. But in our hearts, we don't completely believe that. I feel it myself when I'm listening to Mozart or looking at pictures of the Mars rover on my MacBook. I feel that tug of human exceptionalism even as I recognize the scientifically isolating cost of seeing ourselves as a superior species apart. Well, I'm trying these days. When I see a human patient now, I always ask, what do the animal doctors know about this problem that I don't know? And might I be taking better care of my human patient if I saw them as a human animal patient? Here are a few examples of the kind of exciting connections that this kind of thinking has led me to. Fear-induced heart failure. Around the year 2000, human cardiologists discovered emotionally-induced heart failure. It was described in a gambling father who had lost his life savings with a roll of the dice, in a bride who'd been left at the altar. But it turns out this new human diagnosis was neither new nor was it uniquely human. Veterinarians had been diagnosing treating, and even preventing emotionally induced symptoms in animals ranging from monkeys to flamingos, from deer to rabbits since the 1970s. How many human lives might have been saved if this veterinary knowledge had been put into the hands of ER docs and cardiologists? Self-injury. Some human patients harm themselves. Some pluck out patches of hair. Others actually cut themselves. 
Some animal patients also harm themselves. There are birds that pluck out feathers. There are stallions that repetitively bite their flanks until they bleed. But veterinarians have very specific and very effective ways of treating and even preventing self-injury in their self-injuring animals. Shouldn't this veterinary knowledge be put into the hands of psychotherapists and parents and patients struggling with self-injury? Postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. Sometimes, soon after giving birth, some women become depressed and sometimes they become seriously depressed and even psychotic. They may neglect their newborn and in some extreme cases even harm the child. Equine veterinarians also know that occasionally a mare, soon after giving birth, will neglect the foal, refusing to nurse, and in some instances kick the foal even to death. But veterinarians have devised an intervention to deal with this foal rejection syndrome that involves increasing oxytocin in the mare. Oxytocin is the bonding hormone. And this leads to renewed interest on the part of the mare in her foal. Shouldn't this information be put into the hands of OBGYNs and family doctors and patients who are struggling with postpartum depression and psychosis? Well, despite all of this promise, unfortunately, the gulf between our fields remains large. To explain it, I'm afraid I'm going to have to air some dirty laundry. Some physicians can be real snobs about doctors who are not MDs. I'm talking about dentists and optometrists and psychologists, but maybe especially animal doctors. Of course, most physicians don't realize that it is harder to get into vet school these days than medical school. And that when we go to medical school, we learn everything there is to know about one species, Homo sapiens. But veterinarians need to learn about health and disease in mammals, amphibians, reptiles, fish, and birds. So I don't blame the vets for feeling annoyed by my profession's condescension, and ignorance. But here's one from the vets. What do you call a veterinarian who can only take care of one species? A physician. Closing the gap has become a passion for me. And I'm doing this through programs like Darwin on Rounds at UCLA, where we're bringing animal experts and evolutionary biologists and embedding them on our medical teams with our interns and our residents. And through Zubiquity conferences, where we bring medical schools together with veterinary schools for collaborative discussions of the shared diseases and disorders 
of animal and human patients. At Zubiquity conferences, participants learn how treating breast cancer in a tiger can help us better treat breast cancer in a kindergarten teacher. How understanding polycystic ovaries in a Holstein cow can help us better take care of a dance instructor with painful periods. And how better understanding the treatment of separation anxiety in a high-strung Sheltie can help an anxious young child struggling with his first days of school. In the United States, and now internationally at Zubiquity conferences, physicians and veterinarians check their attitudes and their preconceptions at the door and come together as colleagues, as peers, as doctors. After all, we humans are animals too. And it's time for us physicians to embrace our patients and our own animal natures and join veterinarians in a species-spanning approach to health. Because it turns out some of the best and most humanistic medicine is being practiced by doctors whose patients aren't human. And one of the best ways we can take care of the human patient is by paying close attention to how all the other patients on the planet live, grow, get sick, and heal. Thank you. get tired of those goats. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Zoya, for sharing that with us. That was a great talk. Actually, it was very interesting. <clears throat> I love the uh, the joke about the one type of physician who can only, or a veterinarian who can only look after one species as a physician. That was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our uh, that's our show for today. We don't have a recipe uh, for today, but uh, we are running a little bit short on time, so that works out just fine. But uh, we'll have one for you next week. Um, so we want to say thank you to uh, to everybody who listened today, to our chat participants. Um, thank you very much for engaging uh, in the chat. We had a busy chat today, so that was nice. Um, and encourage you to check out the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network. Uh, the Truth Perspective uh, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and Behind the Headlines on Sunday uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time also. Um, and we also are sort of marking our one-year anniversary of the Health and Wellness Show next week. Um, so our first show was actually uh, January 12th of uh, 2015, and uh, our show next week will be on the 8th. So it's not quite there, but it's close enough for horseshoes, so we will be celebrating that um, next week. So um, just want to say thanks again uh, to everybody for tuning in. 
Um, be sure to uh, to check out the show next week. And uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Have a great week.